And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when certainly on this show, almost anything can and often does happen. Welcome, everyone. Um, we got a really extraordinary show tonight. I've been waiting to do this for weeks. We planned this some time ago, and all kinds of gremlins, including Mercury Retrograde, have gotten in between in, in the way. Uh, our guest tonight, our primary guest, Chandra Wickrama Singh, Dr. Wickrama Singh, who is probably one of the world's eminent astrobiologists among many other talents, is in Sri Lanka. So he's literally halfway around the planet, and we'll be bringing him in shortly. Um, it's a different time zone. It's actually much later uh, in the morning there, about 9.30, I think, as opposed to his normal time of 4 a.m., when from England he has to join the show. Uh, before we get to Chandra, and we also have uh, uh, Ra Cataldo with us in the third hour, and he's going to bring some very interesting original research. We're going to find out how he and Chandra met and have decided to work together. And then I have some surprises for <clears throat> both of them. So we will wait, you know, a couple hours until we get to that. Let me start with some news. There's all kinds of news in the mainstream, most of which is really kind of noise. You know, if I if I see one more story about Trump trials, I'm going to scream. Ah, there's so much else going on on the planet, but our media is fixated by, well, actually, it's something which is very historic in that you cannot, you know, try a president, an ex-president, uh, on uh, four indictments with 91 counts without it being just a tad historic. So, remember the maxim of this show is everything, everywhere, all at once. So it's all hitting the fan simultaneously. But apart from that rather boring and, you know, teeth grating, nail scratching on a blackboard, ordinary stupid news, um, you need to think about the other things going on and the major news of this week was that after months and months, literally a, a, a year uh, or more, um, the, uh, the, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration finally completed through an independent panel, not technically part of the agency except by this contract, uh, their report on un unidentified anomalous phenomena. Now, you know that about two or three months ago, we had a preliminary preview of their report, and they really made news in one section of their four-hour-long video, which is available on the other side of midnight. I'm not sure exactly where, but uh, it's there. But this is much, much shorter. This is a written document. It's a PDF file. It's my second item for tonight. We're going to kind of segue into it in a moment here. And what I find really interesting is what it says, what it doesn't say, and what it says in very Emily Dickinson fashion between the lines. For one thing, it's uh, incredibly symbolic. The report is 33 
tetrahedral pages long. Not 31, not 35, 34, 33. And on page 33 is what we would call in old Hitchcock parlance the MacGuffin, the thing we were looking for. So we'll get to that momentarily. So for those of you who are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. That's our homepage. Click on that. That will take you to the homepage. And at the very top, you will see a very brilliant banner, which is one of Webb's latest stunning images. And the title says, The Webb Telescope's First Year and Astonishing Discoveries. Well, we're going to talk about the discoveries tonight with Dr. Wickrama Singh. And as I said, in the third hour, we're going to bring in one of his colleagues, Ra Castaldo, and he will uh, add another overtone to the conversation. And as I said, we will be talking about some discoveries we have made independently that seem to correlate quite nicely with what Ra has totally independently discovered. But we'll get to that, as I said, in a couple of hours. In the meantime, you're now on the what we call the guest page. Click on uh, uh, the homepage banner, and that takes you to the guest page. Under the guest page, it says Fast Links to Items. When you see the banner again, just kind of scroll down. And you click on my name, Richard, and there we are, my items in radio with pictures uh, for tonight. Item number one. This is a Reuters story on the... Um, uh, report by the NASA Independent Panel on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Remember, originally it was Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, and then they changed it, which of course is really interesting because you can put everything and the kitchen sink under the rubric Anomalous. I mean, science in and of itself is built to, is crafted to, is designed to examine anomalies and try to figure them out and try to predict the next data point, the next anomalies in a chain of them. And that's really the only way in our 3D universe that we know the world. Well, if you read that story, you'll see that they go through the fact that, you know, they've been set up in connection with the Pentagon's so-called ARROW program, which is their unidentified anomalous phenomenon, and they are kind of working hand in glove. Um, everything was going fine until uh, last, I think it was Thursday, when the uh, NASA administrator held an hour-long press conference with some of the key people in the unidentified anomalous phenomena group, this independent study, including his um, uh, one of his deputy secretaries uh, or deputy directors, at headquarters, and a reporter, I think it was the Reuters reporter, said very, very, you know, innocently and obviously the, the right question, well, who is the new director of the Office of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon? And to my surprise, and to the reporter's surprise, the director and the uh, head of the science division of NASA both said, well, we can't tell you. And I looked at the TV screen, and I went, what? And, you know, another reporter tried, and they said, no, we, we, we can't tell you. Now, I've got to say, I have been a part of NASA. I've been a consultant. 
I've been a paid employee. That's what consultancies are. I have covered NASA both inside and outside of CBS for decades. I even had a very small part in the actual Apollo program, and I've told that story on other shows, and you can just go back and uh, you know, look at some of the transcripts or you know, listen to the shows. I, this is the first time I've ever seen the head of an official government agency say to the press, well, we have the head of a new department, but we can't tell you who it is. I mean, this went over like the proverbial lead balloon. And sure enough, uh, a few hours later, and that's where this story comes in, my item number one, NASA was forced, and I'm sure it's because all the lawyers, you know, committed Harry Carey and Administrator Nelson's outer office, and after he climbed over all the dead bodies, he realized, whoops, I could not do that. It's against federal law because of accountability acts and a whole bunch of other stuff about, you know, um, citizens, accountability, hearings, public record, congressional testimony, et cetera, et cetera. You can't, as a federal agency, not tell the people who's running what. It's by law. You have to tell them. And I don't know whether they got, as the phrase goes, kind of ahead of their skis or they were trying to tell us something in a very Emily Dickinson fashion, like between the lines, but tell it slant. But the idea that the administrator and then the director of science at headquarters would basically tell the press, you know, go pound sand when it came to the director of this incredibly high visibility, incredibly controversial office, which, let's face it, is looking into UFOs with science, with serious science, as Nelson said, not with speculation. The fact that when they were asked point blank, well, who's the new director? Who's the guy in charge? And they refused to name him. It was like either you're really, really, really dumb in the ways of Washington, which, of course, both these individuals are not. Or, as I used to say in Hollywood, if you have a problem, hang a lantern on it. And I think what they were very cleverly doing is hanging a lantern so there'd be a lot of conversation behind the scenes as to, well, why won't they really tell us who the damn director is? Because... It turns out, and you can look up his name in the uh, first news item there, number one, that he is a liaison between NASA and the Pentagon of many, many years. So he's a military guy. Now, remember what I've been saying for years based on the actual evidence of the NASA charter enacted by the Congress back in 1958 after the president decided to create a so-called civilian space agency. If you read the NASA charter, it turns out that NASA is not, I repeat, NASA under law is not an independent civilian space agency. That's the propaganda. That's the spin. That's the branding. That's everything except the truth. The truth is, it says in the charter that NASA can release nothing to the press, to the public, to the world, to newspapers, television networks, social media, whatever, without the concurrence 
of the Department of Defense to ensure that no information relevant to national security is declassified by NASA unless there is high-level security department intervention. So what by, by, by not telling everybody who the department chairman was, the director of this NASA Office of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon at uh, NASA headquarters, by making the press go, what?, and start making phone calls and sending tweets and, you know, text messages and all this by creating a minor firestorm around why aren't they telling us what in fact Nelson and company were doing is underlining that this office is really under the Department of Defense, which, of course, in a world of truth is what people who have not read the NASA charter for a very long time, if ever, needed to be reminded of or have folks like us remind them that this whole thing was completely superfluous. All he should have said is it's so-and-so, Mark, what's his name, Isenbrooker, I think that's his last name. Anyway, the point is by making a big deal, it hung a lantern on it and it made seasoned veterans of the whole NASA military establishment relationship go, ah, so in fact, there will be Pentagon censoring of any information that is deemed not worthy of public attention because of national security, etc., 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 etc. So, with that out of the way, that's, that's item number one. By the way, do you notice that the picture that illustrates the Reuters um, story is of the huge NASA, what they call the meatball, the uh, blue circle with the chevron and the orbit and NASA written in white across it. And they're in the process in this photo, which is taken of the emblem on the side of the vehicle assembly building down at Cape Canaveral. Um, You'll see that they are repainting in this image the NASA logo on the side of the VAB, which is metaphorically kind of interesting and appropriate to the subject, because in essence, what NASA is trying to do, per again statements by the administrator, by launching this office into UFOs, i.e. unidentified anomalous phenomena, they are in essence trying to repaint or rebrand or upgrade the NASA logo and transfer that upgraded branding to the subject of UFOs themselves. It's all very multi-layered and very, very Emily Dickinson. So item number two, this is the actual report, okay? And you just click on it. It will take you to the actual PDF. Let me get rid of something on my screen. And if you look at it, Um, opening and closing the report is a a beautiful color picture of the Earth. And apparently they are both images taken by an unmanned test back during the 1960s, the late 60s, 67, I think, Apollo 4, of the um, Apollo stack. Everything, you know, the Saturn V rocket, 
the Apollo command module, the service module, the only thing that didn't have, you know, included in that flight, unmanned again, the test flight, was the lunar module. But they chose, for some reason, to illustrate this PDF, the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Independent Study Team Report, to the administrator. They chose to illustrate it front and back with a photograph, two photographs of the Earth taken from the unmanned pretest of the Apollo vehicle itself, which years later, two years later, in July of 69, would land two human beings, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, on the surface of the moon at the uh, Sea of Tranquility. Why did they pick those two photographs? Why not something more emblematic of unidentified anomalous phenomena? Like, there's all kinds of incredible stills of unidentified things flitting around in the Earth's atmosphere that they could have used. But it's almost like they wanted something so generic, so, for a lot of people, boring at this point, like one more picture of the Earth from space. Come on. But I have a feeling it might be deeper, so in my copious spare time, between now and next weekend, I will have dug into the dates when Apollo 4 flew, and if those dates are in any way connected to a uh, deeper level, more interesting symbology. Other than that was the flight which I somehow got invited, back when NASA was talking to me, formally invited to attend at Cape Canaveral that uh, November launch of the unmanned full-up Apollo stack, as they called it, rocket, spacecraft, etc. And um, thereby hangs another tale. This was, you know, way, way back when in history. Why they picked those two photographs, I do not know. But once you get into it, you know, there's a table of contents, there's an executive summary, there's close-ups of red sprites, which are incredibly high-voltage um, things going on in the stratosphere above major thunderstorms. Um, there are bullet points. There are um, uh, visions of uh, Aurora Borealis. There's a foreword. There's a beautiful view of a meteor striking uh, the Earth's atmosphere with the Milky Way in the background and off to the right. That's the Andromeda Galaxy, M31, which is 2 million-plus light-years away. There's an introduction. There's a weather balloon. Um, there's some blurry photographs of South Asian Object Image 1, footage taken by an MQ-9, whatever that is, of an unidentified object in South Asia with an apparent atmospheric wake or cavitation later assessed doesn't say by whom. Um, well, it's proud of the DOD because uh, the appearance of DOD uh, visual information, it says in small print, does not imply or constitute DOD endorsement. So even in this NASA study report, when the study reproduces a photograph taken and analyzed by the DOD, in bureaucraties, the DOD is saying, but we don't take any you know, appearance here as an endorsement of NASA, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, scroll all the way on down. Down, 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 down. I'm belaboring this for a point, okay? You scroll all the way on down, and the MacGuffin, to use a Hitchcock term, 
on page, note this, on page 33, under observations beyond Earth's atmosphere. Remember, they're looking for unidentified aerial slash anomalous phenomena, which means UFOs cavorting around in Earth's atmosphere. However, on this page 33, there is this paragraph, which is literally the second paragraph to the end of the document. It says, currently planned or existing NASA missions can widen their scope to include searching for extraterrestrial techno-signatures in planetary atmospheres, on planetary surfaces, or in near-Earth space. These searches generally wouldn't require changes in hardware or data acquisition, but may simply require new directions in data analysis. And that's the MacGuffin. Because what they're saying there, let me translate, is and we're also going to, as part of this study, look for alien ruins on nearby planetary surfaces, including the moon. Ding, 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 ding. That is their doorway to verifying if UFOs won't cooperate, that there are, in fact, extraterrestrial techno-signatures. Don't you love that term, techno-signatures, on planetary surfaces? In other words, it's the same thing that one of the uh, scientists at the uh, four-hour briefing said, you know, months ago, that it is now scientifically plausible to look for extraterrestrial civilizations leaving marks, ruins, remains, debris, stuff, machines, whatever on other planetary surfaces or even in space all across the solar system. That means that there is now an official bureaucratic office which will allow us to submit our incredibly copious detailed research going back decades which show that on NASA data, on NASA's own calibrated data, there is in fact evidence of extraterrestrials all over the solar system and that it can be approached, it can actually be, um, shall we say, examined without NASA really changing anything from their data analysis, which is spacecraft orbiting or on the surface of other planets, or in terms of their data analysis. In other words, they have set it up so that the next step will be to provide actual proof of signatures, techno-signatures, on other planets in our system. I have said for literally now decades that the way to open the extraterrestrial intelligence doorway is not through spacecraft zipping around or pretending not to land on the White House lawn, but in fact, the safe way, the Brookings way, the way that will disturb the least number of people first would be if we found, the human race found, ruins. 
not live guys, not live aliens, not bug-eyed monsters, not creatures from the Black Lagoon, you know, carrying ray guns and incinerating everybody in sight, but good old dead sterile ruins, which has the advantage of A, it proves that extraterrestrials exist, and if there's one set of ruins, there'll be more, and behind the ruins there was somebody at some point in time who built the ruins, but they may not be present now, which means you create a window of, of um, decompression, political, psychological decompression, so people kind of gently get the idea that, oh, there could be somebody out there. And if there are ruins built by someone a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, cribbing madly, then maybe the next step that they could be coming here now is logical, is testable, and all we have to do is examine the UAP phenomena, and we will find out if, in fact, any of these things flitting around are, in fact, current, bona fide, extraterrestrial spacecraft carrying extraterrestrials. See how all that fits together? And in this document, in this study, as I predicted, you know, months ago when the uh, preliminary uh, hearing, the four-hour hearing took place, I said they're going to set up an office, they're going to create a bureaucratic file and study and, you know, um, employees to begin to handle from outside of NASA and maybe outside of academia. Although there are some scientists like Avi Loeb who are dying to jump in with, uh, you know, data to have NASA obviously analyze. But this is the stall, as my grandmother would have said, where whereby we can enter. But of course, you can't enter the office unless you know who the director is. And after some teeth pulling and and hair pulling and all that, um, that came out on a Thursday afternoon after a great deal of weird, you know, well, we can't tell you who the office is run by, which, of course, makes zero sense either politically or legally. Okay, we are waiting to uh, connect with Chandra, who is, as I said this morning, is in Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm not seeing a uh, high sign as to whether we've got any joy on getting uh, uh, him on the line. Um, If we don't, what I'm going to do is go to our other guest, who is Ra Cataldo, and we'll have him kind of give you a background. And then, of course, he will tell us how he and Dr. Wickrama Singh met and how they have decided to collaborate in some rather remarkable, far-out uh, research. And I think we do have Chandra now part of the conversation. I'm looking at my screen. Everybody, of course, looks at screens these days. So let me continue with my items. If you look at item number three, uh, after the NASA study itself, item number three is a news story which came out of of the Nexus um, uh, um, news filter, which is kind of like a, uh, a wire service except for very unusual stories. It's not AP. It's, it's basically run, I believe, out of Australia. Uh, the Nexus magazine, which is a very well-known magazine in um, anomalous phenomenon. And um, so we are still working on Chandra. 
I'm reading what's being typed to me. So in the meantime, look at item number three. This came out just a few days ago. Um, it turns out now that the Webb Telescope, this extraordinary, incredibly complicated instrument that against all odds was, um, was actually launched, sent to its L2 orbital station about a million miles behind the Earth as seen from the sun, and has now been functioning for over a year with exquisite perfection, precision, reliability. There have been a couple of little tiny hiccups, but they haven't amounted to anything. Anyway, uh, that's the subject of item number three. And given the fact that we are now literally at the bottom of the hour, let me do this, and then we will be back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're trying to get Dr. Wickrama Singh on the line. We've got Rock Taldo on the line. And depending upon how the switches flip, we will talk to one or the other when we return. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 17th. There's something about the 17th of September. Eh, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, we're still working on trying to connect with Dr. Vikrama Singh, as I said, halfway around the planet in Sri Lanka. Isn't it amazing that we can do this at all? And sometimes if there are hiccups, well, sometimes there are hiccups. So I'll tell you what, let me, let me do this. Let me... Uh, give you the background on Rock Taldo and we can just kind of swing into uh, how uh, he got to know um, uh, Chandra 
and how they wound up working together. So let me do this, and then I will do this. Okay, um, Ralph Anthony Castaldo, also known as Ra, uh, is a, um, well, he's a born intuitive. And I think you've been familiar with some of that from uh, um, uh, Jonathan Womack. Um, he is a call bearer, a musician, an artist, and basically a Renaissance man, or as we call him around here, a generalist. From a lineage with deep ancestral history going back hundreds of years in the Mediterranean, connected to preserving stellar mysteries, in August 1987, Ra had an NDE, which seemed to amplify his already natural-born hypersensitivity in a whole new way, and opening up his psyche or whatever to harmonic frequencies, as he terms it, and vibrations that he could not actually understand at first. He's currently an artist, a musician, an author. He's a researcher and even creates his own copper healing products. He's also a dedicated father, a martial arts coach, and even a remote viewer who has had much to share and will share with us tonight. His website, themysticalspiralstore.com, features his copper healing products and crystals, and as you can probably hear, his professional life kind of parallels that of another of our famous and regular guests, David Sarita, who has somewhat of a similar overlapping background. So while we're waiting to connect with uh, Chandra, Ra Castaldo, you're on the air. Come on down. Well, the price is right. Thank you for having me here. Right. <laughs> oh. Okay, let me let me go way 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 back. You know that was well. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, while we're waiting for Chandra, and electronics can be fickle. How did you wind up doing the things that brought you to Chandra's attention, and then ultimately got you collaborating with one of the world's most famous and most uh, real uh, astrobiologists that I can imagine? Uh, that, yeah, you're, you're right. And, and, and in fact, it, it just happened sort of like uh, the universe just made it happen that way. And, I'll, 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 and, and it's not like some magical story to it. It's But there is uh, an interesting background. Well, first, Professor Chandra, like, like yourself, is one of the most uh, respected men in the world for me and, and many other people that's into astrobiology, cosmology, astronomy. And I first knew about him in the 80s when I was a young boy. My mom would bring me to the library, and I just gravitated towards um, Fred Hoyle and uh, Professor Chandra's books right away as soon as I found them. You know, Diseases in Space and and um, and things like that. I think it was Evolution in Space, Diseases. There was certain books that uh, it just blew my mind back then. So I already knew about Professor Chandra long before I ever – met him and then um you know i like you like you previously mentioned i come from a lineage that has hereditary mysticism going back in italy and i'm actually a reverend in a line that goes all the way back to giordano bruno it's called oh my our god and, yes our lady and lord of the tridacrian rose and my godmother my spiritual mother uh lori bruno who's actually in her 80s now she actually worked for nasa as well richard um she was an intern as a technical illustrator in the early 1960s when she was right out of high school and um so she she actually is a world-renowned psychic she had a 
a store in Salem, Massachusetts for many, many years. She just recently kind of retired with that. But um, she has written books about Giordano Bruno and, and things like that. And For those Professor who were Shun- kind of you know dropped out of high school, <laughs> and there's a few yeah. of those, who the yeah. heck was Giordano Bruno and why should we be talking about him? Well, Giordano Bruno is someone that Professor Chandra has wrote about a lot as well. And then we had a mutual friend as one of Professor Chandra's assistants from India or Sri Lanka. And uh, we just ended up getting in communication with each other. And, you know, his assistant had showed him some of my work and about my lineage and things like that. And then I ended up interviewing Professor Chandra. We hit it off. And I've, I must have interviewed him at least six or seven times over the years. And we've always stayed in touch and shared research with each other. And he's sort of been um, um, not just a colleague but a friend of mine that I've always respected. And, and I've always said that if I ever could have, like, two people to dinner one night, it would have been Fred Hoyle and, and Professor Chandra. You know, just to, Oh, that would uh, have been one heck of a dinner. Wow. Right? Did you ever read uh, Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud? No. I oh, my God. You have a treat in store for you. Black Cloud. I don't have the Black Cloud one. Fred, Cla- Fred, Fred Hoyle, who was a brilliant astrophysicist of the 1950s, uh, and Chandra's talked about him, you know, mucho times, uh, was one of the world's leading astrophysicists, both in uh, stellar astrophysics, how do stars shine, as well as cosmology. You know, is the universe closed, open, is it a big bang? Is it a steady state? All these terms came from that era. Yeah. Well, in his spare time, like when did Fred Hoyle have spare time? He turned out to be one hell of a good science fiction writer. And he wrote this brilliant novel about an interstellar being, an interstellar cloud that turned out after much of the story had gone by to be intelligent. And it's so interesting to see the parallel between uh, his work and Chandra's in terms of interstellar dust containing biological, you know, uh, creatures, organisms, microbes, little, you know, bitty guys that are somehow kept alive in some kind of uh, suspended animation in the cold of interstellar space. And when they arrive on a planet, if it's suitable, they land, they come down through the atmosphere gently, they populate the seas, the oceans, etc., and life springs forth. So what Chandra and Fred did together was to open the door to the idea that if you look at any particular planetary environment, like the Earth, like the astrobiologists have been doing for decades and decades and decades, going back to a guy named Stanley Miller, um, they are looking at a non-planetary origin for life in an infinite universe because uh, uh, Fred did not believe in the Big Bang idea that the universe you know, had a moment and blossomed and everything came into being. In fact, he looked at the um, a Big Bang. In fact, he coined the term Big Bang as a kind of a derogatory uh, BBC conversational point where he was derisive of the idea that the universe is anything but infinite, both in time and space, and that whatever cycles we see are occurring within an infinite universe. So you can have bang, 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 separated by billions of years, but it's not really the creation of the universe, it's the recycling 
of our portion in ways that are currently not understood by astrophysics. So the idea that Hoyle would, in his spare time, become this really interesting sci-fi writer, and you've got to get this book somewhere, library, internet, whatever. It's called The Black Cloud, and it, it contains some really interesting novel ideas, even novel back in the 1950s, and it's still novel, even now. Because I don't think Chandra has gone as far as to say that any of the interstellar life that he is, you know, detected with instrumentation is in fact at the level of intelligence. It seems to be all pervasive as bacteria in some frozen suspended animation form waiting to drop into an appropriate um, uh, Petri dish. Yeah, I think, well, if you follow where the bacteria is being sent from, that's where you got the alien life because I truly don't think that anything in the universe is being just sent randomly. They're under divine guidance, in my opinion. They're on mathematical orbits, comets, and, you know, mostly yeah, stay away wait, wait, from wait, wait, the wait. Mathematical is not the same as intelligent. So we, well, we, what we, I'm we, we may have a really interesting uh, conversation later in the morning about that because I am of the totally opposite idea that there is not a pervasive intelligence guiding anything in fact it's all about frequencies and harmonics and and overtones and undertones and ultimately if you let harmonics run wild long enough you get every possible harmonic and chord and overtone it just need enough time and given that we have an infinite amount of time that in itself is kind of what's you know, minding the store, at least in terms of my model. Well, that is an intelligence. No, it isn't. It's frequencies. Intelligence, and we're going to have... By the way, uh, let me make a little announcement. You know, guys, that I've been looking for someone to talk authoritatively and intelligently and, and understandably about AI. We have found that person. And the night of the 30th, which is two... Saturdays from last night he will be on the other side of midnight and boy do we have a huge range of really really interesting and deep questions to pose this individual um, I will probably announce who it is next Saturday uh, after I we had a chance to talk he wants to uh, talk by phone and I'm going to obviously because obviously we only have three hours so I have to kind of limit some of my questions which will you know, beguile us with other questions and they will lead to other questions and all that. But the idea that, in you know, you can create an artificial mathematical intelligence, that's going to be one of the core things we're going to explore and discuss and maybe argue about. So you might want to hold off any final thoughts, Ra, until you hear that show. And in fact, um, anyway, so let's just kind of no, no, I I understand exactly what you're saying. I just I have a different spiritual way of looking at it. I have a scientific way of looking at it. <laughs> well, you, well, you see, that's the problem nowadays because no, it isn't. In the past, 
Now listen, one second. In the past, thousands of years ago, before there was a division and there was a problem with it all, spirituality and science were fused together and they were one in the same. And that's the whole reason why people can't understand the ancient writings nowadays is because they put on a cap of either science or spirituality. When in the past, they were fused together. And once you realize that, you can understand what they're saying in, this, in the ancient writings is advanced plasma astrophysics, bacterial genetics, um, and all sorts of uh, uh, sciences, but they're saying it in a spiritual way, a very spiritual way. And if you if you would give me the chance to explain <laughs> why you had me here tonight, I'd, I'd very be well. To we're 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 going to get into that as we move through the morning. Uh, <laughs> let me ask Keith: Are we having any joy on Chandra? You can speak up. Your voice is well known. Oh no. So, no joy on Chandra. Well, this could turn out very strange. Okay. So anyway, um, how did you guys, you and Chandra Wickrama Singh, how did your paths cross? What was the actual occasional event that brought you two together? Oh, that's that's. It wasn't like an apps apps like an, an event actually, but it's interesting because I start to get like. I guess you can say it's just an inner inner or telepathic. I'll get the imprint of someone's face. It'll come in when I'm sometimes laying in bed at night and I'm not thinking about nothing or sometimes when I'm being creative and time just disappears for a little while. Like say, say you're writing or even reading a book. You could be painting, writing a song, whatever you do. And the next thing you know, it's like, you're, you're, you're sitting there and three hours just disappear like you were just you know time just disappeared and you're getting lost in your work when certain things like that happens sometimes like a face will come to me things like that that was happening with me with professor chandra right before the very first time we actually met and, well, wait 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 um, I, you you were aware of his work before right how yeah i was aware of his work before but we have never spoken but, but, but how did you know about his work and hoyle and all that Oh, my mom brought me to the library when I was a child. Okay. And I I happened to see one of his books, uh, Diseases in Space, I think it was. Right. And uh, yeah, and that was the first time I found out about Sir Fred Hoyle and Professor Chandra. So, I mean, it's a big planet, seven billion plus people. Yeah. How did you wind yeah. up meeting him? Well, it's uh, through his assistant. That's how we ended up, uh, you know, we had a mutual friend and... I was sharing the work with that and then asked me if, you know, Professor Chandra would like to. Maybe he'd like to interview. I was like, I would love to interview him. So we ended up communicating that way and I started to share some of my work with him. And then after I interviewed him, then we really started to connect because, uh, you know, the interview I did, the kind of questions that I asked, I think he was really impressed with, with the type of information that I was talking about. And, uh, you know, I come across as sometimes I, I look a y- lot younger than I am as well. So I think he, he was a little taken back with some of the <laughs> some of the information and the questions. Good genes. Good genes. OK. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and, and it just uh, since then, we've we've always stayed in contact and, and shared our work. And, and um, I think since I've been he's been in my life and I've been doing interviews a couple of times a year with him, uh, things have been just happening when I go out in nature um, it just seems to be in tune with what I'm researching like a certain a certain thing will come to me while a hawk will appear or a woodpecker or something like this and it, and it seems to be that certain people get put in my life that help to activate certain information 
So, so it's kind of like what we would call serendipity. You're not yeah. looking for something, but something kind of shows up and leads you in another path, another direction. Yeah, I think I think sometimes some of the answers that we're looking for in life we already have, and we're 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 sort of blind to it. Like some of the some of the things that we 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 we're, we're always searching for things in life, money, this and that. But we already have everything we already need. The information's already inside of us, and sometimes we need someone else or something in our life just to give the right little switch, just to give the right little motivation. Well, you know why that's so interesting because serendipity, which is what you're describing, is the process. Finding something you're not consciously looking for. Yeah. Tonight, Chandra is in the kingdom of serendip. Because Sri Lanka (laughs) used to be the kingdom of serendipity. That's where the name comes from. And that, of course, neither one of us were thinking about until you uttered those three or four phrases, which is a quintessential example of serendipity. That's that's very interesting. That's, That's good that you put that together like that. That's what this show it's is cool supposed to do. That's why we're here. That's why we do. I like that. You know, this show is not replicated by anybody else on the air. I guarantee you. And, guarantee and you. Know, what's, what's so amazing, too, about Professor Chandra is that what what some of what – of course, not everything. Of course, the steady state theory of, of Fred Hoyle. But he was thinking outside the box. But a lot of what they've said still holds true 40 years later. Like what? And, Be like, specific. Uh, about comets uh, carrying – the evolution and the seeds of life. Right. You know, all of that panspermia, all the I mean, we're finding out most of this is now is true. And um, you know, there's a lot of things that they wrote about with bacteria, even certain diseases possibly being traveled through the cosmos, like the whooping cough Professor Chandra has written about, you know, the cycle of it coming around with certain meteor showers, things like that. It's very important work that that it that still hasn't been disproven all these years later. So there's a lot of important work that they that it's still holding true all these years later that uh, Professor Chandra was I think he even coined the term astrobiology. Him and Sir Fred mm. Hoyle, if I'm not mistaken. Google is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys could probably figure that out. I mean, I, I I didn't Google it, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I've 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 interviewed him before and and said that. But it, you know what I've come to find is that. Literally, no, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm not. Well, you know really what's so dis- bizarre is that the mainstream is so damn stubborn sometimes. And I don't know whether to attribute that to just stupidity and ignorance and, you know, bullheadedness and inertia where you don't, uh, uh, you know, admit a new idea until it's absolutely overwhelmingly obvious and you have to, you know, cave gracefully or just. Never admit that you were wrong. I mean, that's what a lot of yeah. the well, mainstream that's interesting does. you say that, Richard, because um, like if you would have asked me a few years ago what certain things meant in the ancient writings, I would have I would have told you something different than tonight. But that was my uh, step work to find the answers. Like in, in life, you're never going to find the truth or get something right. Usually, at first, you have to go through years of trial and error to find the truth to get to the to get to the truth and and a lot of people they don't want to admit that they could have been wrong in the past. But you know what? That was your footwork. To find the answers that you're looking for, you know, the universe doesn't just give you some of the most deepest secrets of nature in the universe. You have to earn that. It has to be a noble quest, and you have to go through a battle with yourself, you know, and your soul. And you have to be totally com- comfortable with who you are and everything else. If you have any uh, resent, you know, resentments or and, and holding resentments about people and different, you're not going to really find answers in life. You're only going to find more struggles and 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 more doubt. 
and, and and it took me a long time to be able to put the pieces some of the pieces of the puzzle together and then once i dealt with a lot of um past traumas and things like that and i was let a lot of let all of that stuff go then the universe started to reveal stuff to me i think that i i might have unlocked many many years ago and just didn't realize and then all these years i've been trying to scramble to put the pieces of the puzzle together when i already had the answers and i just had to silence my mind and let it come in you know? see one of our models is that a lot of this these answers are in higher dimensions <clears throat> and the problem is the bandwidth between those dimensions and our 3d reality is so narrow that such little information can be communicated in any particular parcel of time that it takes a long while to build up a, a, a database or a knowledge base through that HD connection, that hyperdimensional connection. And that there are people who are not going through what we call the normal metonymic scientific left brain process, which is me, and instead they kind of plug in directly to, well, one term would be your higher self, meaning who you really are hanging out in another dimension and you know it's kind of communicating to you things that yes is part of your uh existence knowledge base but your 3d form is so limited that unless you get these hits from higher bandwidth connection it takes a long time before you know the message kind of dawns and it's like oh my gosh let me give you an example very recently, last couple, three years, the Soviets slash Russians have been doing swabs of the outside of the International Space Station. And they've discovered unknown forms of bacteria and algae on the surface of the space station, which is orbiting in a hard vacuum 260-some miles above the atmosphere. And it's like, it's overwhelming affirmation to me of the uh, Chandra model that interplanetary space and even interstellar space are filled with these ancient bacteria which have been spewing forth from you know their origin centers for eons and so space is pretty much permeated all that we can see with this reservoir of living you know bacteriology and that when it found an appropriate medium on which to grow, i.e. the space station, it glommed on and then the cosmonauts brought in samples and sent them down to Earth. And apparently Chandra is now part of a Russian study team, which is headed by a, uh, a woman doctor in, in Russia, looking into the origins uh, of this anomalous life, microbial life on the exterior of the space station, all the while, the critics, the guys who have been dissing on Chandra's and, and Hoyle's model for decades, who say, no, it's impossible, impossible, impossible. There is no data. There is no data. And of course, there's a lot of data. The guys who are on the other side of the fence, the guys who are claiming this is all nonsense, they're literally exploring the idea that somehow orbiting 260 miles above the atmosphere, the space station is picking up bacteria from Earth that somehow are able to get up to that altitude and somehow get into orbit. It's nuts. It's pathetic. It's an excuse in search of a problem because the obvious parsimonious Occam's razor answer is, well, the space station is a giant Petri dish 
And as it orbits the Earth, and the Earth orbits the Sun, and the Sun and the solar system orbit the galaxy, they're just sweeping up these bacterial forms, life forms, and when they find a growth medium, in this case, the exterior of the space station, bingo! They come alive and they start to reproduce, and it's like we're on the edge of confirmation of Chandra's and Hoyle's most incredibly predictive and solution-oriented model for how life in the universe originated. Ra? Yeah, I'm with you. There you are. There you are. Okay. So, okay, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour. What I want to do when we come back, I want to go into this NDE that you had because apparently it was a real break point in your life between what went before and what's come after. It was one of those, you know, choosing a different path, except this in this way the path kind of chose you. So I want to go into that. But in the meantime, talk to me about healing. How did you wind up getting into the world of hyperdimensional technologies with copper and crystals and the things that you're producing? Yeah, and, and you know, the, the NDE experience links into our topic tonight of, of plasma and traveling into the, the plasma waters at the moment of death. So it goes perfect into that. Uh, yeah, working with the copper and crystals sort of uh, just came naturally. Um, being an intuitive, um, I've always looked for enhancing. So, so, so this happened post your NDE experience? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, what, with uh, the copper and crystals? Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. I was nine years old when I had uh, the NDE experience. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, you know, same as, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Black Elk? I think he was the Black Elk. He, he had, uh, he was a, um, a shaman that... Uh, Black Elk Speaks, you can get the book where he talks about he was a Native American shaman. And uh, at nine years old, he also had a very interesting experience that is uh, very similar to mine when you read the book in, in some ways. But he just – he gives a lot of different symbolism in it. But uh, yeah, we'll get into that. The copper and uh, and crystals just came kind of naturally, just me being into certain things. Uh, Slim Sperling in the 1990s really um, – influenced me making copper tensor tools uh, out of the royal cubit measurement when you're twisting the copper clockwise and then making a coil or a loop oh, that's out of the it. same kind of stuff that david does yeah yeah i i, I by the way have you david. ever have you ever walked worked with him or talked with him yes yes we're friends oh good yes. good okay yeah because yeah. if and, you uh, weren't you were about to become friends <laughs> yeah we worked together in in the uh the show together we did last time i was on your show as well and um, you know, I've I've kept in contact with him since since then. We we make some similar products as well. Uh, you know, when you wrap copper coils around crystals, it's going to enhance the energies and the properties of the crystals. The only thing I don't really I don't really like to wrap in copper coils are tektites, me- meteorites, and moldavite, things like that. It's a little bit too much energy when you wrap that in a copper coil. But uh, yeah, the, the copper coils. Wait, are well, really how can powerful. you have too much energy? It's a little bit too intense. You can feel. Uh, oh, you mean in terms of you as a human detector? Yeah, yeah. I don't like the feeling. I don't like ah. the, the energy of it when I when I wrap coils around tektites or uh, moldavite things things of that nature. I like actually vivianite is the one ex- uh, exception that I do I do like to wrap in, in copper coils. Vivianite it's a, it's a little bit different than a moldavite, but yeah, that the energies are it's too it's too high. I think too much. I don't know the right terminology to say with it, but it's it's 
too much. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the uh, top of the hour. My first guest this morning by uh, serendipity is Ra Castaldo. And we're talking about his life, because if he had this NDE at like nine, that means most of his life has been devoted to looking at the other side, the hyperdimensional connections. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.